Hi, I'm Peter Harrington, and you're listening to Policy and Pandemics, a podcast from OPM giving you a unique look into the COVID-19 crisis around the world. Welcome to episode six of Policy and Pandemics. In the last two episodes, I had an extended interview with Professor Matt Andrews from Harvard about crisis leadership and also zooming out to look at the different challenges and different performance of countries around the world with COVID-19. This week, we're going to focus on Africa to try and understand what's happening across the continent, what we know, what we don't know, and what's coming down the line for the continent as a whole uh, in dealing with this crisis. I'm delighted to be joined by Kate Dooley, who is the West Africa Regional Director for the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Kate, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Kate, can you tell us a bit about the work that TBI is doing in Africa on COVID-19 and your role in that work? Sure. Uh, So as you said there, I'm the West Africa Regional Director, but since March, basically, I've also taken on uh, leading our uh, advice and thought leadership within the Institute on the public health response to coronavirus in Africa. So right across the, the teams we've got in the continent. And the Institute as a whole has really repurposed all of its work to, to focus on solutions to coronavirus, both on the health and sort of broader economic side, um, where our work sort of now sits across roughly three buckets. So we've got the teams embedded with governments as we did before this crisis kicked off. So we've got teams in 14 countries in Africa, um, providing the sort of day-to-day hands-on operational support. We've got uh, the central work that we're doing to share uh, and exchange lessons and insights that we're making available you know, beyond just those individual governments we're working with. Uh, and then the, the Institute's also doing quite a lot of sort of global facilitation work just because we have a global footprint. We're quite a large organisation these days, over to around 250 people, I think. Um, and we've been trying to do things like involve um, technology, uh, connect um, technology companies and innovations and um, the suppliers as well for medical equipment, things like that, back to the governments that we're working with. You were involved in the 2014 Ebola epidemic in West Africa. Can you tell us a bit about your experience there? Yeah, I actually arrived to work as an advisor to the Minister of Finance in Sierra Leone in about three months before Ebola arrived. Um, so, um, And then I quickly found myself running our, our project and working for um, the president at the time, Ernest Baikaroma. And so we, again, in that case, repurposed all of our work to support the Ebola response. A lot of our work there was really came down to information management and ensuring there was sort of real-time and validated information that provided an evidence base for decisions, resource allocation um, within the crisis management structure of government. What would you say are the big differences between that Ebola epidemic in 2014 and the current COVID-19 crisis? I think the maybe two biggest differences, there's probably a lot, um, is just obviously the disease is very different. I mean, uh, Ebola is very hard to get. You have to be in, you know, you have to have contact with the bodily fluids of somebody who is sick with Ebola um, and it's much more lethal. So, you know, in the early days, um, before there was proper sort of treatment uh, facilities in Sierra Leone, for example, you know, their fatality rate was around 80, 90% and it came down over time, but still sat at about 60%. Whereas, you know, here we're set where there's international evidence saying that despite the sort of reported stats, that the, the fatality rate of coronavirus might be less than 1%. Uh, so it's, it's very different. It's also much more transmissible. So, you know, it's much more infectious. 
um, and so many, many, many more people have it. And therefore, the systems that were so important, what are so important for infectious disease management, like contact tracing, um, you know, it was a huge effort required to, to do that with Ebola, but, um, you know, they had much less contacts to trace, whereas now it's just hordes of people that need to go on those contact lists. Uh, so that's a one really big difference, a big challenge. The other is that, although it was very, very slow, you know, eventually in West Africa, there was huge international support, including human resources, you know, health workers, uh, emergency workers, you know, military who had logistics capabilities and, and sort of supported the uh, crisis management systems, things like that. There's no international travel now. So we're not seeing those types of human resources coming in um, at this stage yet either. So yeah, I think they're two pretty big differences. I think you're right that in comparing Ebola and COVID-19, there's probably as many, if not more differences between the two crises as there are similarities. Um, you mentioned data earlier in the context of Ebola and how important that is in knowing what's going on. What is actually happening with COVID-19 in Africa right now? There's been lots of talk of a sort of de delayed tsunami across the continent, but how much do we actually know uh, about what's going on on the ground at the moment? That is the sort of 1.2 billion person question. You know, it's really, really hard to say. So I think... Um, what we, what we know for sure, right, is that there isn't a lot of testing happening in most countries. And so the reported case numbers uh, are, uh, I think we can safely assume, are missing a lot of real transmission that's happening. What we've got is a couple of countries that are doing loads of testing, South Africa, Ghana, Rwanda, and now more and more countries. But these guys are doing, you know, I think South Africa have hit over 10,000 tests per million population. The, the average across sub-Saharan Africa is less than 1,200 tests per million population. And just for comparison, you know, that, that compares to something like the 50,000 tests per million that you're seeing in Germany and Israel, places like that. Um, so, so where you've got a lot of testing happening, you obviously have a lot more information. And in those sorts of cases, you know, South Africa and Ghana, they, they have a huge number of, of coronavirus cases. And in South Africa's case, I've seen today that their testing backlog is now up to 100,000. So that's how many tests they, you know, samples they've collected that they haven't processed. And I think that what that's telling us is they have a huge outbreak on their hands. I think we for sure see that this virus is spreading across the continent. However, it's going pretty slowly uh, and slowly compared to other regions as well. Now, some of that is undoubtedly explained by low levels and slow rates of testing in a lot of countries. Um, but nonetheless, you know, for those of us who live and work in the continent or have done so, you would expect by now that even if your data wasn't showing large numbers of cases, anecdotally, you would start to see, you know, wow, this community's had a lot of unexplained deaths. Wow, these health facilities are really overrun. Wow, these health workers are getting sick, those types of things. And actually, there are really not many stories like of that nature yet. Now, that said, um, there's sort of not a lot of research that's, that's going on yet, so we don't know for sure. Um, but there's sort of a feeling that uh, the severity of the disease and the fatality rates seem so far to be lower, which is a kind of cause for hope, I suppose. But we have seen um, South Africa, for example, release some modelling work um, just last week showing they're not expecting cases to peak there until July. Um, and other countries will follow. And so I think that potentially the kind of worst in terms of very widespread nature of the outbreak 
is yet to come, and then we'll see whether it reaches other populations and whether we see some of those sort of the severity and, 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 and mortality change over time. If it is the case that COVID-19 is spreading more slowly across Africa, what do you think are the sort of best explanations or theories for why that might be? So for sure, I think we have to sort of accept that data is, and, and low levels of testing are part of the, the story. Um, a couple of other factors are African governments acted extremely quickly. So they closed borders, they stood up screening at their airports, you know, even before they had cases in a lot of countries. Um, they had lockdowns in place very, very quickly compared to other regions. You know, they had the sort of benefit of having seen what happened in Wuhan and then spread across Asia and Europe. So they acted much more quickly than um, Asia and Europe were able to. So they got on top of it quicker. They had less people bringing cases into their country because borders were closed. They introduced lockdowns very quickly. Uh, and they had some of the experience of sort of infectious disease surveillance and they have community health workers. So they were able to sort of stand up some of these surveillance systems and screening really quickly as well. So I think that's been a big factor. Um, you have uh, urbanization is much lower in Africa than it is in sort of Asia and Europe. So that may well be an important factor. We have a very different age profile across Africa, many more young people who are less affected by, by this particular virus. Um, you know, these are the sorts of reasons that have been um, shared around. There's lots of speculation about other factors that could be at play to do with climate, environment, um, you know, immune system, different immune system responses because of the prevalence of other infectious diseases, different treatments that you know, people take commonly for malaria or tuberculosis. And so none of that is really established yet, which is why it's this big dilemma and mystery that um, unfortunately governments have to work with this enormous amount of uncertainty now to sort of uh, navigate their, their policy decisions through. Kate, when you look across Africa and in particular sub-Saharan Africa, which countries are doing really well with COVID and which ones are struggling? And what do you think explains that difference? Yeah, we actually did look at this as a recent sort of short publication that we put up on our website um, and having been sort of closely, as closely as possible, tracking everything that's going on across the continent these past couple of weeks and months observed sort of roughly four categories of countries. When we came down to sort of look at, well, that looks like sort of those who are responding effectively and not, actually across that spectrum, a very obvious factor is just basically, you know, uh, GDP per capita or GDP overall um, and sort of government capacity. So the four categories that we see are those who acted kind of early and effectively and have had the capacity to maintain harder restrictions as well. So South Africa is one example. Um, Ghana, you know, they've done a lot of testing, they've had great systems, they've caught up with a lot of cases, they now have very widespread outbreaks, but they have better information on which to, to plan their policies as a result of the, the approach they have taken. There's a set where we're sort of calling it kind of cause for uh, cautious optimism, the likes of kind of Kenya and Ethiopia, where, you know, they're now, they were doing very little testing, but are now broadening their, their testing you know increasing their testing but also getting beyond their capital cities and um and are finding more cases as a result but in ethiopia's case for example really not many cases at all but the broader story within the region and transmission happening with you know, truck drivers across borders and things like that you know there's clearly um risk there that, that, that they'll need to continue to focus on there's then a set of countries that i think are instituting kind of best efforts and deploying their experience from other infectious diseases, including Ebola, but are really hindered by 
severe capacity constraints. So this is the sort of Sierra Leone, Nigeria, these types of you know, much poorer countries who you know, acted quickly because they have plans in place, um, but very limited resources. And you add to that the effects of, sort of the global economic crisis that's now uh, underway and the sort of uh, price, the commodity price shocks and an oil exporter like Nigeria, obviously huge impact on revenues and therefore you know, their resources to respond to this, this crisis. And then in the fourth category are those that have really acted, um, have been very slow to respond um, or are sort of frankly in a kind of state of denial. And so the most prominent case that we've seen on the continent really in this category has been Tanzania. Um, but there are others, I think, in terms of sort of slower to respond and have been a bit unsure how to respond and maybe a little less organised in terms of standing up a kind of crisis structure or system quickly. Uh, and quite a number of countries in the Sahel fit, fit in that category. Although some are now sort of um, revisiting their structures and, and increasing their testing and getting more organised like Burkina Faso. A couple of episodes ago, I was interviewing Dr. Beth Engelbrecht, who heads the public health response to COVID in Western Cape, South Africa. And she uh, highlighted how at any given time, they're confronting a number of different public health crises, um, whether that's TB or AIDS or malaria. And the same goes for many countries or most countries across Africa. There are a number of ongoing uh, public health crises and other types of crises like drought and famine. How is COVID-19 interacting with those sorts of existing and endemic uh, crises that countries are facing? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a real... Well, it's a real concern, basically, especially on the, the health side. Um, so a couple of things to say here. I mean, we can see some evidence in a few countries where we work that of sort of reduced health seeking behavior. So people, you know, fearful of this global pandemic, aren't really sure who is most vulnerable to this. Um, and so a lot of people are avoiding going to the health clinic. Um, that includes pregnant women and includes um, people taking their children under five who need regular checkups who might have malaria. Um, it also means that in a lot of countries, the health systems have been sort of more diverted to trying to stand up a response to coronavirus specifically. Um, and regular um, immunization programs have been delayed. Um, other treatments have been um, stocking out in some cases or near stocking out so for hypertension for diabetes for tuberculosis and malaria these types of things and some of that is um, just because of global supply chains being disrupted as well um, but but also um, you know the service itself is disrupted by the attention given to coronavirus and an extremely challenging uh, question i think is really that if we're not seeing as many severe uh, or fatal cases of coronavirus across the continent so far, you know, does that, do those stats really justify diverting your health system? Um, you know, we've seen a lot of the big international institutions, Gavi, um, WHO, UNICEF, others talk about the kind of consequences in terms of the potential to sort of double the number of deaths from malaria this year, for example, as a result of sort of these lack of services. Um, uh, you mentioned things like drought. I mean, the other big, one of the other big challenges really is around food security because we also have a disruption in um, the, the global supply chain there for not just the you know, food products and staples like rice that are normally imported, but also fertilizer for farming. Um, so there's, there's a big challenge on the food security front too. And for the poorest countries on the continent, um, you know, simultaneously trying to get their head around how to respond to coronavirus, trying to find ways to maintain health services, needing to backstop livelihoods for people through ca cash transfers because, you know, the economy has been at least temporarily shut down by lockdowns and um, reassure people that there is 
food and making it available to vulnerable groups. So it's just an impossibly kind of unprecedented policy crisis for, for these governments, I think. I think unprecedented policy crisis is exactly the right way to describe this. Last week, in last week's episode, um, Matt Andrews said that we're sort of moving from Act 1 of this crisis into Act 2. What does Act 2 look like in Africa? And what are the big sort of challenges and pitfalls that, that countries need to plan for and, and try and avoid? Yeah, I think you're right. And Matt's right there about, I think, as inevitably these lockdowns start to ease, we, we do enter a different phase. And it will be one in which there is more, not less, transmission of the virus. But my reading, too, is that where even though there are significant efforts, particularly underway by the Africa CDC and others to to bring in the diagnostic supplies that, that governments need to maintain testing, um, I just don't think it looks like that's going to be sufficient to do the kind of mass testing that a lot of European countries and Asian countries have moved towards. So what I think you see is there'll be more transmission, but probably not as good a handle on where that is, other than when people get very critically ill and need hospitalisation, um, you know, things like contact tracing won't be able to maintain because it'll be too far spread. And so it'll be a matter of kind of, well, we're in a COVID world now, if you like, across parts of Africa. And the challenges will be then, um, you know, ensuring, like helping people to learn to accept that this is a virus, like there are other things that we have to deal with in the health system. So it's not we're not going to have this sort of dedicated COVID facility necessarily, because actually we need that for people with lots of other um, uh, health needs. But the, the, the two really difficult tricks about all of that is that at the same time, um, you know, Europe and Asia will be maybe a couple of months ahead and be starting to reopen themselves to the global economy. And then Africa will be the place where there seems to be a lot of Cases. And we know during Ebola that even just for those three countries, it led to the isolation of large parts of Africa, even where they didn't have Ebola. Um, and so governments really need to find ways to maintain a handle on what's happening in their country with coronavirus, I think, in order to help facilitate their re-engagement with the global economy so that you know, their goods and services can cross borders, that they can receive investors into their country and really participate in the economy. Obviously, we've all learned uh, in this crisis globally that, you know, you don't have to do everything in person, but, but, um, but it will be really important that they are stigmatised and isolated. And one of the ways that we've recommended governments might be able to do that in a world in which there are very limited diagnostics um, for the rapid, you know, tests for people who currently have the virus is to use antibody testing, which is a bit more... Um, can be more easily administered and is cheaper. Um, there are some problems with accuracy, but there are some companies that have highly accurate tests available um, that could help you just build up the picture so you have a better sense of people who might have immunity as well. And then that actually itself, having a, a sense of, you know, as an individual that you can be assured that you have some immunity um, and as a government that you have a handle on, on the, the sort of immunity in your, your country will also help you to um, plan for rolling out a vaccine once it's developed as well. And the second sort of big challenge, though, obviously, is just the state of the global economy, um, which, you know, most African countries are still you know, heavily reliant on raw natural resource exports to other parts of the world. So um, they've had a huge, significant hit to their, their revenues now. Um, you know, there are enormous numbers of jobs at risk. I think there have been some estimates um, out there by the likes of the World Bank, talking about sort of 100 million out of 300 million informal jobs being at risk, uh, let alone, you know, some, some jobs in the, the formal sector as well. 
so so figuring out how to uh, adapt the, their industries and economies to diversify, to be part of that new global economy, however it looks through all of this, will be an, um, it's, it's an incredible uh, challenge, but you know, has some opportunity as well for Africa itself to look um, within Africa. This is supposed to be the year that the Continental Free Trade Agreement kicked off. So, um, you know, looking at how they can uh, collaborate uh, within the continent, I think, too, will be part of that picture. That's really interesting, this idea of a sort of delayed stigmatization that could leave the continent isolated and sort of deepen the economic shock. On that uh, economic side of things, what do you think are the most important measures that policymakers need to take to try and mitigate the economic damage and also to try and take advantage of any economic opportunities on offer? Yeah, I think that, I mean, first and foremost, governments really need to support um, their in the sort of most job intensive industry, if you like, to be able to uh, reoperate safely. Um, and then I think governments need to um, take a kind of broader look at the state of their, their major industries and think about, I mean, in a world in which they're going to have um, potentially even more limited resources is also looking at how their economies contribute to some of the immediate challenges around sort of health and food security as well, um, and look at opportunities that they were starting to discuss together within the continent too about uh, collaborating. Um, so, you know, where are their efficiencies? Where they've learned through this process that they're so sort of in a lot of cases heavily dependent on. Um, you know, importing a set of staple goods or other uh, industrial needs from, from overseas into a whole range, like in West Africa, you know, lots of very small economies, small populations, small markets. So if they collaborate a little bit and even have industrial integration across borders and things like textiles and garments, perhaps, certainly in agriculture and value addition in agriculture, you know, they could be adding value to, to their products, getting more employment out of that industry across um, across borders that you know may then be destined for export overseas, but some of it may then also be destined for internal markets within their own region or elsewhere in Africa. Um, so some of that, which is the sort of spirit, I think, of the Continental Free Trade Agreement that that, that is coming, um, I think, is something that they can they can look to as well. In terms of, I mean, th th there's no doubt there are still going to be the needs that existed that pre-existed coronavirus around, um, you know, infrastructure. Um, you know, reconnect the extension of uh, electricity and the, to build an industrial base to sort of create more jobs um, and to add value to agriculture. So all of those things will remain important. Um, and I think what's going to be quite interesting, although I haven't um, seen quite as much written about this as I was, was expecting, I guess, is that um, the other dilemma for their international engagement, their, their, the support that they, their, their collaboration with their international partners is that um, actually, a lot of international partners, as lots of people all over the world, have been sent home. And so there are a lot of people, or as many people, you know, sitting there embedded in all of these countries, getting to grips with what's happening in industry X or Y, and being able to then have the resource on the ground who actually really understands and knows the country best to design the best policy responses and interventions um, from, you know, international assistance. So quite a lot of that has to be done remotely. Um, that's obviously going to be kind of less efficient, potentially, you know, potentially less effective over time. But, but I'm really interested to see um, how some of the international partners respond, because I, I feel that more than usual, 
um, you know, governments obviously are going to have to take charge of these agendas, um, set out the, the path they wish to pursue that they think is going to produce the best outcomes. And uh, they're going to be going out and asking international players to back their, their plans, you know, I think in some cases, in a, perhaps in a, in a different way. Uh, I think that's going to be very interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, I agree. It feels as though there's maybe almost an opportunity for countries to take greater control or authorship over their pathway, which is exciting. In terms of resilience and in terms of the future, there was a lot of talk in the wake of Ebola about this idea of build back better. So you can build stronger systems um, and institutions that, than those that were in place before the crisis. But my sense is that that never really quite came to fruition um, five years ago. Do you think there's an opportunity to build back better after COVID? And are you optimistic that countries will be able to do that? Yeah, I think that I think that is tr- true. There was a lot of that talk, lots of big, you know, donor conferences and big commitments. Um, actually, I think just as much as anything, I think governments themselves were um, too. It sounds terrible. I, they they were too ambitious in a way. To be honest, you know, I think that it's sort of like a great. Well, now we'll fix everything. Mm. You know, and for any any government, let alone those with sort of limited resources and capacity themselves, you, know, you really have to prioritise and see things through. And that's always been the philosophy of uh, Tony Blair Institute and the, the delivery advice we give to governments is that you, you really can't fix everything at once. You know, and obviously you can you have high ambitions for what what you can achieve for your country, but um, but actually you'll get more done if you really focus in on a couple of things and make sure that they're done well and, and lead to a sort of sustained change. Uh, so I think that that some great stuff was certainly done um, after Ebola. And I think there've been some great legacies in terms of regional institutions that follow that. So at the Africa CDC being established really was sort of followed the, the West Africa Ebola outbreak. And that institution has proved to be incredibly uh, valuable or right across Africa now with, with coronavirus. So there's some of those legacies that I think have been re- very valuable. What In terms of resilience now, and everybody's sort of the similar hopes, I guess, that, um, that we may have an opportunity here. I, I think the, the, the difficulty is, is going to be that, just as, we, as we've just been saying, you know, governments are going to simultaneously have to rebuild their economies, backstop livelihoods, potentially deal with food security crises, or definitely in some cases, and figure out how to ensure that they can be a participant in a global economy in which, you know, potentially you have to find some way to prove that you either have a negative test or immunity before you travel. And there are you know, great technology options available that can hopefully be deployed, but then you immediately hit up against, you know, the challenges of connectivity across Africa and things like that. Um, so there's just basically a, a huge competition for limited resources here that, that will be a factor. One of the things I would hope to see um, is that for the countries that have stood up now, these crisis structures, and have them sort of improving and iterating, and, and, and once they've got them at a level where it's sort of they're doing the, the functions required to capture information, validate it, analyse it, provide advice to governments, that those sorts of systems ought to stay in place in the short term until all of the basic essential health services that have been lost in this last couple of months are caught up. So you could very well just, you know, for now, you'll have a set of KPIs out there about tracking and tracing uh, coronavirus cases. 
Um, you, you could very well set out a set of targets about, you know, catching kids up on vaccinations, on ensuring that all women who, pregnant women who needed a um, antenatal checkups are all caught up on those. You know, you could set a whole bunch of benchmarks just to ensure that you're dealing with the greatest vulnerabilities in your, your health system. Um, and that would be a very good use of those capacities and, um, and probably uh, help ensure that uh, those systems start to get embedded. I think ultimately one of the things we have to accept is um, uh, one of the things we've seen in um, particularly in Sierra Leone and Liberia with uh, their experience post-abolish, you also had changes in governments in both of those cases. And these are um, political systems where you've got, you know, big opposing forces. And once you go to change in government, it's almost everybody out. Um, so a lot of the experience from that crisis actually is no longer in government at the sort of political level. So that's something a bit unavoidable in the short term, I think. Have we seen any notable gender impacts of COVID across Africa? And will we see any lasting gender impacts? I think that I've had a bit of a debate about this with a couple of, sort of friends and colleagues working across uh, the continent, particularly in West Africa. Um, I think there's some indication that, and, and we, we know already from the, the demographics and the nature of um, communities and societies that, that you know, women uh, shoulder a very significant burden in terms of livelihoods of families and childcare and a whole range of other things, um, and also have um, poor health outcomes, particularly um, pregnant women and young girls. Now, interesting with coronavirus, sort of international evidence seems to suggest that men are worse affected. And um, that, I think, is starting to bear out a little bit in Africa, but it's a bit inconclusive yet. Um, but uh, in some of the, there's some really interesting kind of regular surveys that various um, academic groups and other institutions have been doing now, which tend to show that a lot of women are finding that their income is being very significantly hit. But I, I, the debate I've had with, with some colleagues and friends is that there seems to be not enough women being surveyed as part of those surveys either. So, um, so I think we'll, we'll see more as more research is conducted in that, in that area. So you spend a lot of your time, Kate, uh, providing advice to leaders and policymakers across sub-Saharan Africa. What are the really big pieces of advice and priorities um, that you're giving to leaders and policymakers right now, looking ahead you know, what are the things that countries and governments really need to plan for? I would say don't underestimate the potential challenge of re-engaging with the global economy, um, particularly as the, the WHO Africa director, you know, talked about the potential for coronavirus to smolder uh, across Africa for a long time. So that potential for isolation, stigma, that kind of thing, I, I wouldn't underestimate that. And so I would say that you know, it's imperative on these governments then to get their information in order um, and to be able to anticipate um, and to, to sort of equip their individuals and their businesses as well, really, and particularly those who are operating internationally and depend on exports, you know, for revenue, things like that, to, to have information about what's happened with coronavirus in the country. So um, whether that's through a combination of doing the, the, the rapid um, PCR tests, that the usual tests of say whether you've got coronavirus now, with complementing that with antibody testing, but also where you have limited supplies, doing things like recording probable cases. You know, when people have all of the symptoms and you want to rack it up as a probable, you know, put that in the database. But but also get you know there are some great uh, software solutions that governments could be deploying, and there are a lot of international players willing to work with them on a pro bono basis even to do that to you know actually have better. Um, electronic medical records to, to, to track this information 
So I think that's um, that that information is going to be really really critical uh, to their eventual re-engagement in in the global economy. Being part of the development of a vaccine and ensuring that there are clinical trials that take place in Africa as well to take account of different um, genetic makeup is also going to be incredibly important. Um, and making sure that that vaccine is actually going to work um, for African populations as it might in other places and being able to you know, access that um, and distribute it rapidly as the rest of the world gains access to it. Um, I think those, those two things certainly are going to be incredibly important and there's no doubt that um, you know, governments are going to have to have, uh, make very challenging um, trade-offs but ultimately sort of prioritise um, how they're going to reshape their economies. Looking ahead to what, what's happening with, with this, this coronavirus global outbreak, how it's changing uh, political alliances and um, how it's changing the way in the world does commerce, looking at the opportunities, I guess, available that will allow um, their country to um, diversify and create more job opportunities. I've been speaking about COVID-19 in Africa with Kate Dooley, who is the West Africa Regional Director for the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Kate, it's been fascinating and an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great to chat. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Policy and Pandemics. A big thank you to our producer, Catherine Valentine, and our editor, Emmy Fairburn. You can get all our podcasts, as well as blogs, papers, and much more at opml.co.uk. And find us on Twitter at OPM Global. Until next time, stay safe. <laughs>